You're listening to Places I Can't Return To, an audiobook by Sean Bear Flannery. Narrated by, well, me, Sean Bear Flannery. Each week, I release the next chapter here on this podcast. If you enjoy these stories, you can buy the full book in digital, print, or audio at my website, seanbearflannery.com. That's Bear, B-A-I-R. What you're about to hear are true stories. But this is no memoir. It's more of an illustration, maybe even a warning, of what your life will look like if you decide to live every day like it's your last. Because I followed that advice. I followed it for a good 15 years. And I cannot re-enter most of the places I visited in that time. Janet's Boss's House, somewhere in Cleveland, Ohio. I was in the emergency room of Akron General Hospital, waiting for a doctor after they had taken x-rays of my chest, back, and both legs. I was part of what the ER staff probably calls the last call injuries. Between the hours of 12 and 4 a.m., there isn't a bar in your city that has more drunks inside it than the ER. When I entered, around 3 a.m., it was like entering Grand Central Station, but in a world where every passenger is drunk and doesn't know what train to board. Actually, it was more like a giant monster had attacked a Jimmy Buffett concert, and this was the hospital they rushed all the victims to. The guy across the aisle from me was in one of those two-person donkey costumes, but the second person was missing, so the ass end of the costume was dangling on the floor. The front end of the donkey was standing above a man who was passed out on the floor. This passed out body must have formerly been the ass end of the costume. From what I could gather, the guy on the floor concussed himself in a, quote, major karaoke mishap, end quote. The guy in the front end of the costume explained that he could not see too well. So, when they decided to sing karaoke together... The front end accidentally backed the ass end off the edge of the stage, causing the rear end to fall off violently, ripping open the donkey costume and concussing the ass end. The worst part of injuring yourself in a donkey costume in August is that you feel the need to explain why you are in a donkey costume. Every time a doctor or nurse entered and asked what the problem was, this guy began with, Well, first, let me address why we are in a donkey costume. They were both SMU grads, by the way. Their best effort to dress like a Mustang. I once read that the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, America's foremost scientist in the field of public health, safety, and pathology, estimate that the consumption of alcohol costs the U.S. economy $225 billion in lost wages due to workers not being able to perform well because of injuries or hangovers. And I believe every penny of that is correct based on what I saw inside the ER that night. We were probably losing a couple million dollars in damaged two-person donkey costumes alone. A shot of science. The real costs of the hangover. A 2010 study on the economic effects of excessive drinking by the CDC concluded that the U.S. economy loses about $250 billion a year in economic productivity due to drinking. 
Egypt's GDP that same year was $218 billion, meaning our hangovers, if they were to become a country, would be richer than fucking Egypt. America loses money due to injuries and hospitalizations from drinking, but by far, the biggest slice of that $250 billion loss comes from workers permanently exiting the economy due to boozing. That is to say, death. About 90,000 Americans die each year from excessive drinking. Drinking kills more people than the flu or diabetes in a normal year. I once calculated that if the entire U.S. economy loses $250 billion a year due to drinking, then Chicago, where I live, probably loses around $8 billion per annum. When I share that with fellow Chicagoans, they usually answer with something like, I can believe it. But I don't think they appreciate how massive that number is. Take forest fires, for example. In 2017, America had one of the worst forest fire years in history. I recall reading the news that year, and each day seeing a giant swath of a new state out west on fire. In that year, the U.S. lost $2.4 billion to forest fires, meaning that Chicago drinks so much that its effect on the economy is like five western states being on fire for three straight years. The CDC further added that, of the $250 billion, 70% of those costs, $175 billion, are due to the effects of binge drinking, which I 100% believe. Most of us head to the bar with a plan to only have two drinks. And I can assure you, the people who are fucking up the U.S. economy to the tune of a quarter trillion bucks are not the people that stick to two drinks. No, it's the people, and I am often one of them, that fail to stick to not only two drinks, but two bars. The people that are at tavern number three at last call on a Tuesday night proposing that everyone head to a 4 a.m. spot next. If you have ever proposed a plan and most of the group reacts with, don't you have to work tomorrow? You are in that group running up the $250 billion deficit. The productivity costs of alcohol are so huge that in the same study the CDC estimated that in order for the U.S. economy to recover that fiscal damage, every alcoholic drink should have an additional $2.05 surtax. That's every drink, not every 6 or 12 pack. The CDC proposed that a dozen beers should incur about $25 in taxes alone. Thank God we live in a country that doesn't listen to science. Everyone in that emergency room seemed to have a shocking, obvious injury. Burns and fractures and wide, bleeding cuts. Yet no one could remember how they hurt themselves. There was a constant murmur of phrases like, Well, we're, we're still trying to piece it together. Or, I'm honestly not sure what happened. Or, my favorite, Doc, I think I may have been given a bad beer. Nobody blamed their injuries on alcohol. They each went out of their way to blame their injuries on everything but the volume of booze they consumed. One guy said he fell down two flights of stairs because the stairs weren't built up to code. A woman with alcohol poisoning contended, I think it was drinking in the hot sun that got me. As a doctor, you know this, but the sun is your worst enemy. I suppose, to a degree, I was just like them. 
When a doctor finally reached me, he was holding a packet of x-rays and asked, So, what exactly happened? Well, Doc, I answered, I guess the easiest way to explain it is, I just really like Huey Lewis in the News. Huey Lewis and the News have always been one of my favorite bands, but at the time of this story, the late 1990s, they had fallen somewhat from their 1980s level thing. I was fresh out of college, working as a network engineer in Cleveland when my buddy Eric, a childhood friend who was now in med school, returned home for the summer. Eric was studying to become a pharmacist, and when he and I were making plans for the weekend, he mentioned a pharmacy convention he knew of that had an open bar and had Huey Lewis in the news booked as the entertainment. What? I gasped. I love Huey Lewis in the news. We gotta go. I don't know, Eric demurred. It's not open to the public. It's invite only. I can probably get a lanyard for myself, but how are we going to get you in? The convention is run out of a hotel, right? I suggested. We'll go to happy hour there. Everyone will be wearing these lanyards. And we will find some old guy that doesn't want to go to the concert. Old guys don't stay up for concerts. I'll ask to borrow his lanyard and attend as him. We went to happy hour and got unexpectedly drunk. Unexpectedly drunk is a common phrase among my friends. We talk about drinking the way a sailor talks about weather, like it's out of our hands. I had no intention of staying out late, I will explain to my wife, but the bar was selling Manhattan's for only $4. They might as well have kidnapped me. Eric and I got drunk at the hotel happy hour and, better yet, got a hold of a lanyard. The plan was working. We met Bob Doppel, an old guy out of New Jersey who was attending the conference and who let me borrow his credentials. I went to the Huey Lewis and the News show as Bob Doppel, Vice President of Operations, Bold Medical Solutions, Morristown, New Jersey. We went to the show, and it was open bar, and it was great. We spent a lot of time near the bar, and I was pretty good about introducing myself as Bob, remembering my fake credentials. However, each person I met was curious about the strategy behind bold medical solutions. What makes it so bold? They would ask, and I probably should have avoided the question, but I thought to myself, God damn it, I'm Bob Doppel. I'm the vice president of this company. I probably built it by hand, and Bob Doppel didn't get where he was by evading questions at an open bar. So I'm going to do what Bob Doppel would do, and I'm going to answer this question and hit it out of the park. Which led to me answering such questions with, well, for example, we're the first company to ask, maybe cancer isn't the problem. Maybe human beings are the problem. Eric gave me a look as if to say, you're really going to go with that. I shrugged at him, indicating I couldn't think of anything better at the time. But then the person I was talking to would chew on my response for a moment and come back with, that's really interesting. That's really different. And that's when I realized, these assholes were more drunk than us. From that point forward, I stopped even thinking about my responses. I had a different, ludicrous answer for each person I talked to. I told one guy I was trying to cure hangovers and mice. I told another drunk salesman that I was the person who came up with the term broken branch syndrome. What's that? He asked. You know that feeling you get when you're about to fall asleep, and then suddenly your body jolts up because you feel like you're falling out of a tree? Yep. I named that. I later looked it up, and there is a real name for that sensation. 
a hypnagogic jerk. And though I realize that in my guise as Bob Doppel, I was a fake medical expert, I nonetheless consider broken branch syndrome a significant improvement on the existing nomenclature and worthy of publication in whatever sleep journal does the most cursory credentials check. We kept drinking, and Huey Lewis and the news kept playing, and it was a great time. As the show wound down, I saw Eric talking to some of the other convention goers and nodding his head. He returned to me with a woman, Janet, who invited us to an after party. As Janet began to explain how to get to the house, I stopped her with, I think we will be fine with just the address, thank you. Which was a bold interruption given that, according to my cover story, I lived in New Jersey and we were currently in Cleveland. Thing is, I've always hated listening to driving directions. To me, finding a destination is a lot like listening to a song. You need to be quiet and let the beat guide you. Directions are a distraction. You become so busy reciting and re-verifying your memories of the directions. Did they say right here? Was it the first light or the second? That you miss the song. It becomes an obsession. I like to be laid back and let the road, the music, lead me. I got lost. A lot. This time, we were missing, driving around aimlessly for almost 90 minutes. An achievement when you consider the house was only 10 minutes away from the venue. Nevertheless, we reached what we thought was the after-hours party, but it was so quiet we were worried that either we had the wrong house or the right house and everyone had left. The house seemed asleep. In fact, the entire neighborhood seemed to be resting. It was a peaceful, beautiful section of Cleveland, hilly with old houses and the river off in the distance. We were wondering if we should leave when a couple came out to the porch to smoke, spotted us, and asked, Who's there? It's Eric and Bob, I yelled back. They laughed about how long it took us to get there and invited us up. It was a huge Victorian house, and we met people on the first floor in a large, open living room. Eric knew some of them, and they were most assuredly not like the drunks at the convention. This seemed to be the A-team. They clearly understood the science behind pharmacy and didn't seem to be as obnoxiously drunk as the previous crowd. So probably wouldn't accept my claims about innovating in the field of cancer unchallenged. I started to think I might be out of my league here and resolved to avoid talking about work. I walked into a separate, empty room, and that's when I noticed the view. A huge, curved bay window with the Cleveland skyline alit above a gleaming river. It's beautiful, I said to myself. A thought occurred to me. I raised my voice and asked loudly, Who wants to go up to the roof? I ran back to the living room where the other guests were, my arms bouncing wildly, letting them know I was about to propose the best plan. Who wants to go up to the roof? I demanded. Ah, I don't think it's that kind of roof, Bob, someone replied. Yeah, uh... Technically, this is our boss's house, Bob, Janet interjected, concerned. He's not here, and I just don't think we should do anything stupid. Well, you know what? I countered. When I said I was going to start my own company, a lot of people told me that was a stupid idea. Eric was gesturing no at me slowly, but emphatically, shaking his head back and forth. Everyone else was staring at me blankly. Sometimes in life, just like pharmacy, a lot of stupid ideas become smart, I intoned solemnly before yelling, Now, who's with me? Let's find that roof! 
I led a charge up the stairs, expecting the entire party to follow. But I only heard the next song come on the radio. Matthew Sweet's Girlfriend. I charged straight to the top, the third floor. As there was no obvious attic or drop-down ladder to reach the roof, I opened a window and put my torso out to get a sense for how hazardous the climb would be. The roof had a dizzyingly steep angle, with slick tiles. It would be like walking down a greased playground slide. Damn it, I thought. I can't lead these drunks onto this roof. They'll probably kill themselves. I quickly returned to the stairs and descended to the second floor. When we arrived, I had noticed there was a portico between the first and second floor, and I realized I could probably get on it from the second-story windows. I opened one of them, and sure enough, it was just a few feet down to the portico. I easily descended to it. It was as flat as a pier and perfect for viewing the skyline. I started to think about how wrong that guy who said, it's not that kind of roof, was going to be when he got up here and saw this perfect platform. I began to explore the portico more fully, trying to discover the best vistas of the skyline, the ones with the fewest trees blocking one's sight. And as I was doing so, I was starting to think about how we would fit everyone up here. You can't invite 15 people up to a roof, then look like a moron with no plan when they arrive. Eric told me later that by this point, everyone inside had moved to the large bay window, the one I had been gesturing to earlier, and they were reassuring each other that there is no way Bob could actually get onto the roof, that he would be fine. Janet turned to Eric and asked, You don't think he's going to do something stupid, do you? Like, is, is he going to fall and accidentally kill himself? Listen, Eric reassured her. Bob drinks a lot, yes. But he's got the golden touch. In life and in business. And with that, the assembled party guests saw me free fall into the concrete. Gathered around this giant bay window, they watched my body pencil dive straight into the concrete walkway, like a vacationer jumping into a lake. To an outsider, it probably looked like I was trying to kill myself, but wasn't a good enough athlete to flip my body around to land head first. Days later, I asked Eric what it was like in that room when they saw me hit the ground. It was the most disgusting sound I've ever heard. He said, Oh, wow, you, you actually heard my bones break? I asked, amazed. No, Eric answered. It was the sound of ten people thinking they saw a man die, gasping, screaming. Janet yelled that her boss was going to fire her. It was like being in a box of fear. Still screaming, the guests rushed out of the house and ran down the stairs to the footpath where I had landed. I was moving a bed and grimacing in kind of a muffled pain, so they could see I was not dead. Not yet, at least. I had walked straight off the roof, not paying attention to my precise position in three-dimensional space. That is to say, I did not slip. I did not lose my balance. I walked straight into the night sky, thinking I had another solid step of roof under me. I don't know if you've ever done this in your house, but it was a bit like when you're descending the stairs and you think you are at the last step, but you put your foot down, expecting it to land firmly on the floor, but there's nothing but air. You missed a step. It was like that. Except I was not one six-inch step above the floor. I was two stories above it. Another way of looking at falling off a roof is you have exited a house at the speed raptors fly at. Which is to say, it's discombobulating. One moment, often the last moment you remember, you are strolling upon a perfectly nice roof. The next, you are rolling around on the ground in pain, with strangers above you screaming and wailing. What's more, the people crowded above me as I twisted in pain could not have appeared any stranger. 
Each of them looked unfamiliar and, more confusingly to me, in that bewildering instant, everyone was calling me Bob. Bob. Bob, are you okay? asked one. Bob, do you know where you are, Bob? pleaded another. I was so flustered by the fall that, for a brief moment, I forgot I was Bob Doppel. For a second, I was just Sean Flannery, about to die on a sidewalk. But their questions eventually placed me back at the party, and I remembered. These people don't know me as Sean. They think I'm Bob Doppel, a successful healthcare executive. And that caused a deep dread within me. Because I was certain I would die from my injuries within the next few minutes. And when that happened, these morons would call Bob Doppel's wife. They will call his wife, and for two days, until the real Bob Doppel flies back to New Jersey, she will believe her husband of 30 years is dead. Moreover, she will think he died like a jackass. Hello? Hello, is this the wife of Bob Doppel? Yes, is is everything all right? I'm afraid I have some bad news, ma'am. Bob is dead. Oh my God, what was it? A heart attack? Stroke? No, ma'am. He walked off a building after drinking about 82 beers. I decided my last act on earth cannot be to sow this confusion. I sat up as best I could, raised my finger to indicate that I was about to impart important final words, and I commanded, I don't care what happens next, no one talks to my wife about this. What? Came a concerned, puzzled voice. What do you mean, Bob? Do not, I intoned. Under any circumstances, call my wife. I relaxed back onto the ground, exhaled deeply, as if I had completed a great and significant task, then closed my eyes, I suppose, to die. Bob? Bob? Bob, are you okay? Can you hear us? At this point, I realized I was not drifting off to a better place or getting loopy. I was just laying on concrete with a pretty consistent pain. I began to think that perhaps I was not dying. Should we call an ambulance? Someone wondered. Should we notify someone at the convention? Asked another. I reopened my eyes, now fairly confident that I was not about to expire. I stared up into the sky to the anxious faces circled above me and confessed. Guys, I got a level with you. I don't really know that much about healthcare. Someone whispered to Eric, I think he has a concussion. The circle of faces all nodded in agreement. The vice president of Bold Medical Solutions was on the ground, claiming he knows nothing about healthcare and rambling orders about not contacting his wife. Clearly, this man was not himself. Let's get you checked out, Bob, Eric suggested and told everyone to go inside. Bob's going to be okay, he assured everyone. I'll take him to the hospital. Are you sure? Someone asked. Yeah, no problem. I've got him. Go enjoy the rest of the party. It's clear to me now that Eric wanted to get us away from these people before they figured out that I was not Bob Doppel. That I was instead some drunk who snuck into a free concert, fooled his peers with elaborate, cocksure lies, and then walked off a building. If they discovered all that about me, then they would also discover the truth that worried Eric even more. That Eric hangs out with idiots. Yeah, we're good, everyone, I told the crowd, and they began to withdraw, signaling that they were ready to return to the party. Then I shook my car keys to show that we were leaving soon and motioned for Eric to walk with me to the car. Bob, 
someone objected. You can't drive. Oh, I'm fine. Don't worry about me, I answered. Bob, you fell off a roof. Another effect of falling off a roof is that you cannot win any arguments for the next few hours. In fact, people won't even listen to your ideas for at least a few days. Each time I proposed a different plan, a whole crowd of people would dismiss me out of hand with, you just fell off a roof. Really, everyone, I told them. I appreciate the concern, but I feel fine. This time they all chanted back at me in unison, you fell off a roof, Bob. It's the closest I'll come to interacting with the Greek chorus in real life. Don't worry, I'm driving home, Eric assured them and pushed me into the passenger seat. Bob's not driving, he insisted. Back then, when I was drinking harder, most nights ended with me being thrown into the car the same way Regan was pushed into a limo after he was shot. A collection of men cramming me into a vehicle for my own protection. At the time, I drove a 1987 Chevy Cavalier with over 200,000 miles on it that had Go Tribe daubed on both sides with the huge image of Chief Wahoo on the front hood, all spray-painted by hand by me. It also had zero hubcaps, and the passenger side door did not work. So Eric had to stuff me into the passenger seat from the driver's side, which caused the entire car to shake as I was trying to maneuver around the gear stick. Wait, you drive a stick shift? Eric asked after seeing me get stuck. Yeah, I replied. And we are parked on a hill. Want me to at least get us out of this parking spot? No, I got it, Eric said. He started the car. The partygoers were still outside watching us and got to hear the most annoying, ear-stabbing noise as Eric struggled to get the shifter into reverse. Eventually, after several seconds of it sounding like he was killing alley cats inside that vehicle, Eric got the car into reverse. With the car now humming quietly, Eric looked up and informed the assembled party guests, good to go. He hit the gas. We screamed backwards at full speed, like we were shot from one of those catapults the Navy uses to launch jets on aircraft carriers, and we smashed into the car behind us. The guests began forming a semicircle, moving closer, concerned. I remember thinking that nicely dressed group gathered together on that wide green lawn sort of looked like they were attending a polo game. Is everything okay? Someone asked. Yeah, they gave us a stick shift. I answered back with a, can you believe this mix-up shrug? I was still pretending like I was from New Jersey. And, I suppose, driving a 10-year-old rental car with no functional doors. Eric was furiously attempting to get the car into first gear so we could leave. Got it, he yelled as the stick moved into first. Don't do anything we wouldn't do, I joked back to the polo attendees, and Eric peeled out like we were cops leaving to save the mayor. He clipped the car ahead of us with my side mirror, but we were not slowing down for anything. This is what we used to call an embassy evacuation. When we needed to leave a party with every person in our group hastily, at all costs. An embassy evacuation was ordered after one of us did something at a party. Ruined a carpet, an appliance, a marriage. And it was obvious that, once word of this incident traveled, we would never be allowed back. Eric accelerated over the hill. One could hear a knocking noise as we disappeared, which was my side mirror scraping against the door as it dangled from the window. That is the last anyone at the party ever saw or heard from us. There is a sort of freedom after a successful embassy evacuation, when you know you are never going to need to deal with those people again in your life. Usually, when something goes wrong at a party, you fret about the fallout. To whom do you need to apologize? Can we replace that vase? 
do I still have a job? But after an embassy evacuation, none of those things matter. That might as well have happened on Mars. You feel nothing but the joy of a clean escape. Of course, in this case, there was some residual guilt that I might have irrevocably altered the professional reputation of Bob Doppel. That people in the pharmaceutical industry may have gossiped. Have you heard of this Bob Doppel guy? He's supposed to be a legend. Supposedly he's been in the industry 30 years, but he looks as young as us, and he can now drink people half his age. Oh, I've not only heard of Bob Doppel, I've met him. I was in Cleveland for a convention. He had about 130 beers, easy. Walked off a three-story building, then told us not to tell his wife about it. Then, and this is the kicker, he and his buddy get into what is clearly a stolen car and drove off. We were now close to Eric's apartment. He turned to ask if I was sure I was okay. Yeah, I answered. In reality, I had broken my back in three places and shattered my heel. I mean, don't get me wrong, I continued to Eric. I'm not at my best right now, and there's a general soreness. But overall, yeah, I think I handled that landing pretty well. Really, Eric countered. It looked pretty bad to me. I thought you were dead. I know. I know. Me too. Me too. And you want to know what's even crazier? Is as I was falling, time kind of slowed down. And I was calm about it because in my head, I was hearing The Power of Love by Huey Lewis in the news. We both started laughing, and the laugh grew. Eric was laughing so loudly and so violently, slapping his thigh, bending over, that he lost control of the car, causing it to jump over the curb and hit a tree. The car stopped instantaneously. Luckily, well, I don't know if that's quite the right word, Eric managed to puncture all four tires when vaulting over the curb. So he hit the tree slowly, while with the car no longer having functional wheels below it. Ugh. I exhaled. Sorry, dude. Eric apologized before asking... What do you want to do? Eric, in the last four minutes, I have walked off a roof and been in a car accident with a tree. So, he pressed. What are you saying? I think you should decide what we do next. Taco Bell? Perfect, I answered. We left the car exactly where it had stopped, against a tree on the lawn of a public library. Eric helped me walk to a Taco Bell. By this point, and I'm not sure if it was because the adrenaline from when I walked off a roof was leaving me, or if I had aggravated my injuries in the car accident three minutes after that, but I was really struggling to walk. We reached a Taco Bell, and they refused to serve us because we were not in a vehicle. Only the drive through window was open, and they insisted we could not walk through the drive through lane which I found ridiculous. You need to be in a car, sirs. They insisted. What? I blurted. We're the only customers in this line that are not actively drinking and driving. Sirs, that's the rule for safety. All right, Eric responded. He was an undergrad English major. If we're going to do the plural formality, can we agree on gentlemen? Instead of sirs. 
I'm sorry, sirs. Or gentlemen. I still can't serve you if you're not in a car. Luckily, the car behind us in line heard the problem and invited us to order from their back seat. I will say this for Cleveland. It has its share of problems. But the drunks there look out for each other. We ate our food, walked a block back to Eric's apartment, and I went to sleep on the couch. But not before yelling, Wake me up early so we can pick up my car before that library opens. I slept for about an hour before being awoken by a throbbing pain in my back. I initially assumed it was because I had slept in an odd position, so I straightened out, lay motionless on my back, and expected to drift back off. But the pain only got worse. After about another hour or so, I started to wonder that something might be wrong with my body. That maybe walking off a building could have negatively affected me. I woke Eric, told him that I thought I needed to go to the hospital, and that we should call my folks and ask for a ride, even if it meant waking them up. Enter my parents. My mom and dad have been awakened by early morning phone calls several times. They have six kids. And it's never a positive call. It was usually one of us breaking an arm or a leg or getting arrested. And every time my parents arrived, they had two distinct roles. My mom would worry if everyone was okay, safe and accounted for. And my dad would just wonder if we did anything he could be sued for. My dad raised six kids, and as far as he's concerned, that meant he created six different opportunities for him to lose the house in a lawsuit. That is how my dad ends every conversation or argument, that a stranger is going to take away his house in court. He might have originally been asked if the car needs gas or how the electoral college works. But regardless of the initial topic, his reasoning will eventually reach a place where one of his kids will make a mistake serious enough for him to lose his house. Better yet, these mistakes are usually innocent. A simple matter of failing to shovel snow off the sidewalk or leaving a bike in somebody's driveway. My dad believes that somehow these can lead to a person seizing your house in retribution. According to my dad, that's how the American legal system works. One of your kids makes a trifling error, a stranger sues you over it, and the stranger is given your house. Same business day, no questions asked. My folks drove me to the hospital. It was a 40-minute drive, and they both talked for exactly 40 minutes. My mom asking over and over again if I was sure I was okay, and my dad thinking aloud about all the people who could potentially sue him for leaving a car on the yard of a library. My dad dropped me and my mom off at the ER so he could get back to the other kids. Before leaving, he told me, Sean, the next time you walk off a roof, don't move. Because if you stay there, you can sue the homeowner, which I love because it's the oddest, most paranoid way to give someone medical advice that is actually, in a roundabout way, correct. We are back in the emergency room. The doctor had the results of the x-rays. My back was broken in three places and my left heel was more or less shattered. The breaks in my back were what's known as compression fractures. The three lowest vertebrae were squeezed into a smaller area from the force of the fall. Essentially, I walked off a roof and was drunk enough to not realize I was falling. So I kept walking in the air, 
not bending or adjusting for impact in any way. It was as if the house threw an anchor off its own roof and it landed dead on the concrete. The doctor was mystified to the point of wondering if he had been given the wrong x-rays. I have never seen a compression fracture in this many vertebrae from a fallen anyone under the age of 70, he said, adding, I think we have the wrong x-rays. Because for this to be correct, it would mean you made no effort to adjust whatsoever. Does that sound like how you landed? My mom asked, hoping to clarify if we had the right scans. My landing, I answered to my mom and the doctor, was not, here I paused to find just the right word, skillful. So yeah, I think we're probably looking at the right evidence. The doctor was so disquieted by this that he brought in another surgeon. And after some kibitzing, the second surgeon abruptly left and re-entered with a small group of residents. The new doctor began explaining the uniqueness of my injury. Compression fractures from falls are very rare in young people because their reactions are usually good enough to better brace for impact. But this young man, he has several, all caused by walking off a roof. We gather that he did not realize he was falling, and he continued his walking motion in the air. He basically walked his way into the ground at falling speed. Like Daffy Duck, one of his residents asked. Yes, replied the surgeon, like Daffy Duck, exactly. That said, the doctor continued, walking off that way, Daffy Duck style, as we are saying, being drunk, I'm assuming you were drunk, Mr. Flannery, being drunk probably saved your life. What? I asked. The human body accelerates fast enough that a fall like yours, over 10 feet, he explained, that's 1,500 to 2,000-some-odd pounds of force on impact. Did you know every fall over 10 feet is lethal if you hit your head on impact? It's too much force for your skull and brain to absorb. But by being drunk and landing like you did, you protected your head. Another doctor, fearing I didn't get the point, added, Quite. If you had realized you were falling, you would have bent your knees which may have changed your center of gravity, and that might have caused you to land differently, potentially hitting your head on the concrete, which would have been assuredly lethal. So, I asked, just to confirm I was understanding everyone correctly. Being drunk saved my life. In a way, yes, came the reply. But doctor, a nurse interjected, isn't it possible that a sober person may not have been on the roof? Shot of science. Are drunks invincible? In 2012, the University of Illinois at Chicago, UIC, released a study that proved drunk people are better at surviving accidents than sober people. And I remember laughing, no shit, nerds. Have you never attended a party with a pool and a second floor? The study did, however, present an interesting case on how drunks survive all this nonsense. And it's nothing like we are normally told. We tend to think that drunks survive accidents because they don't see the catastrophe coming and are loose and flexible, that they somehow bend their way out of the problem. This is false. Drunk people are hurt just as bad, if not worse, in the initial injury. 
The UIC study analyzed almost 200,000 trauma records from 1995 to 2009 and concluded that drunks were usually admitted with equivalent or worse injuries when compared to sober people in comparable accidents. But despite the damage being equal, drunk patients were 50% more likely to survive. A few years later, a comparable study by UCLA estimated the effect even higher, 65% more likely to survive. Drunks do not have some Zen or Gumby-like ability to avoid injuries. Instead, they get to the hospital and forget to die. Both the UIC and UCLA study landed on the same reason why drunks survive so much better. Drunks are terrible at correctly estimating how hurt they are. What often kills you in a bad accident is not the injury as much as your body's own defense mechanism. Adrenaline is released by your body, your heart rate increases, massive inflammation happens, and it all combines to worsen blood loss to the point that you do not survive long enough for proper medical attention. Drunk people, by comparison, have no idea they've been injured and can therefore survive much longer after the initial injury because they lose fluids at a much slower rate. Let's say you're walking along a river and, for reasons that will not be understood until later, a harpoon enters your chest. If you are sober, you immediately panic. You scream for people to dial 911. Your heart is racing like never before as you loudly bemoan the improbability of dying from a harpoon. Your panic increases further as you wonder which people to call to share your final dying words. And will you be able to drop this harpoon fixation long enough to share a meaningful last exchange? Or is it just going to be a bunch of incoherent wailing complaints? Then it goes dark. You have no pulse when the ambulance arrives due to the blood loss. You are pronounced dead upon arrival. Now say the same thing happens and you are drunk. You don't even realize you have a harpoon in your chest until you reach the next bar and the harpoon prevents you from fitting through the doorway. <laughs> look at this. You scream to your friends already inside the bar laughing. I look like a goddamn foosball figurine. <laughs> I got this rod sticking out of me, man. Someone yells, that's a fucking harpoon, buddy. And the bouncer says you may not enter with a harpoon sticking out of your chest. Multiple people are calling an ambulance for you. The ambulance has to convince you to accept a ride. You live for another 40 years. And the harpoon is mounted on the wall of your apartment. You decline to press charges against the equally drunk and inattentive boaters who launched it at you because the story is so epic. That is the kind of choose-your-own-adventure example of why drunks survive similar accidents so much better. They don't know they have been injured, and on that account, they can wait longer for medical attention. In each of these studies, the scientists belabored the point that, though their conclusions show drunk people survive injuries better, they are not suggesting you should drink more. As factored over multiple years, additional drinking leads to more injuries and diseases and would reduce, not increase, your long-term safety. I have reached a different conclusion. The entire point of drinking is to forget reality to mute the forever background panic of your mind. Which, as we just learned, not only helps us survive bad injuries, but I would also argue, life. Life is a harpoon to the chest that just bleeds slower. Society is nearly unbearable. Your commute to work somehow gets longer each year. Cooking recipes switch between ounces and cups. Like you understand that conversion? Your neighbors hate you if you don't cut your grass weekly. 
And that's when things are going well. Imagine adding sickness, injustice, calamities. Who wants to deal with that sober? Which is why I've concluded these studies show I need to be drinking more. One, if the situation goes wrong tonight, I will probably survive. Two, while this means I might be signing up for fewer years overall, I'm pretty convinced the years I have are better years. Maybe that's the real reason we survived these injuries. Maybe the researchers got it wrong. Maybe the reason the sober die more often is staring at the aseptic light of an ambulance, bleeding badly, they begin asking important questions and decide, I can't do another day of people talking about their air fryer recipes. I'm going to quit fighting. Whereas us drunks, we look up at the same situation and think, I got to find out why that girl with one arm slapped the dude in the captain's hat. And we fight to live another day. <laughs>